whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a journalist and the former editor, founder, and publisher of the Sondheim Review. It's Paul Salcini, everybody. Hi there. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. How are oh, you? That's great. I'm doing great. I'm so excited to talk to you and talk to you about uh, especially your wonderful new book, Sondheim and Me, all about the... Uh, the, your history with Stephen Sondheim and the Sondheim Review, a uh, a magazine I read all through college because we got it at the music library at Catholic University and we would eagerly await the issues as they would come in Whoa, <laughs> for your coverage. So it was very exciting when I uh, when your, your publisher reached out to talk to you because I thought, oh, wonderful. I get to <laughs> hear all about this wonderful magazine. And Thank we you. We definitely talk about it, but we're also uh, you're also here to talk about... I'm here to talk about... The Golden Apple. It's a lazy afternoon And the farmer leaves his reaping And the meadow cows are sleeping And the speckled trout stop leaping upstream As we dream The Golden Apple. So... You you catch me at a great moment for this musical uh, because my son has recently become uh, not quite obsessed, but super interested in Greek mythology. Uh-huh. And so I was ve- listening to this again, very re- like catching a lot of references, uh-huh. um, which I thought was great because if I, he hadn't been if we hadn't recently listened to something about the Trojan War and the wedding at the beginning of that, I it would have just gone right over my head. But I want to start, as I start every episode, by asking, how did the golden apple come into your life? Um, I'm, Well, it's been a long, long time. I saw the show many, many years ago. Uh, I, in fact, I, I saw it in, um, in uh, 1968 at a college here in Milwaukee. I... I, it just seemed like a fascinating show, so I was going into musicals at that point. And so I went to see this, and I was just blown away by the story and the score. And um, it was just a, a terrific production. And um, so I didn't uh, follow it up by eventually getting the uh, LP at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, getting the script and... Um, nobody hardly ever does, uh, Golden Apple, which is unfortunate. Um, but I did go to Chicago, Evanston, uh, in 1995 to see a joint production by the Pegasus Civic Light Opera Mm. and uh, by Pegasus and the Civic Light Opera. And that was really, really good. And then, um, I did go in 19, 2017 uh, to New York when Encores did the production. It was right. sort of, it was not quite, it was staged a little bit, but um, it was, the, the whole score was there. I thought it was a terrific production. So the, the big one that I did miss was Dallas. Uh, that mm. was at the Lyric Stage in Dallas in 2014. Mm. And a complete score uh, record 
of the score was made for that productions. The one that I have, the one that I like, what we'll talk about tonight is, uh, is sort of pieces of this golden apple, bites of the golden apple. There you go. I like that. Uh, it Yes, and it absolutely feels that way. I will say, listening to it again, I was struck by how, I mean, you think of a, like a modern highlights cast album yeah uh would would have the whole song it would just have fewer songs this seems to try to do every single song or most of them yeah. at least you know a verse a chorus and a, another verse and maybe a half chorus and then we're on to the next i think we should say that there is no dialogue in this in this uh right production it is entirely sung yeah um, it's an opera really mm-hmm. and um which scares people away of course and but it's, but it, it the the variety of music in it the songs are so different each one and the the story is and they encompass the story so well that it's just so captivating. It it does have structurally a very Gilbert and Sullivan kind of feel to it for me, which but I like that it it is more varied than a than a Arthur Sullivan score as you say yeah. it is not. It, 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 the songs do shift tone style um, yeah. and quite frequently. And it, it keeps your interest the whole way. I think largely because of that, because you never quite know what the next song you're going to hear is going to sound like. Right. Yeah. And they, and they uh, reflect the story so well and the story and the story uh, is adapted from um, the Iliad uh, so well and uh, transferring it to Washington state. <laughs> which it's not some an apple orchard, I guess. Um, right, <laughs> Mount Olympus and everything there, and it's just it's so clever. It is mm-hmm. so clever. It, I, yeah, I do kind of wonder why. I guess they went to Washington State for Olympia and Olympus, and that and that kind of general yeah. Greek vibe. Um, it does feel. I mean, if they went from. Well, of course, initially the lyric says, and I will admit I forgot this, the lyric says at the beginning that they were fighting the war in Spain. And I yeah. thought, oh, my gosh. And then they realized in song two or three that, oh, they're talking about the Spanish-American war. They were in Cuba. It's like, OK, that's at least a little closer. But still, right. at that period of time in which this is set, crossing the country to go to Cuba would have been like, yeah. well, I mean, it might have been a lot like leaving, you know, whatever Greek city you were in to go to Troy. Right. It would, you know, right. may have had that same kind of effect. I just it. think they're so clever. Uh, mm-hmm. Ulysses, there is, the, 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 he keeps the names, Ulysses yes. and Penelope and Helen. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, this is uh, the, the boys coming back and they're talking and Ulysses talks about their adventures and he says, was a glad adventure, the Philippine scenes were so sweet. Them eager roots in their birthday suits made life just a sunny school treat. Wherever we went, they loved us, so dazzled were they with our charms. The folks in them lands ate right out of our hands. But why did they chew off the arms? Oh, why did they chew off the arms? I love that. And that continues for a while. That yes. Thing. And that's another, that there are some wonderfully, I think, uh, now we would consider them rather old fashioned. I guess they probably were pretty actually even kind of vaudeville type routines. There's the yeah. um uh I'm looking oh Scylla and uh Charybdis right. uh sequence is 
something like straight out of a vaudeville double it act. Is. And, and yeah. you know, that's why I'm here, Mr. Sk- you know, that's why I'm here, Mr. Triv, just kind of yeah. back and forth that really takes you off guard in a fun way, late, especially late in act two. That's such a fun little moment to experience. Right, right. Excuse me, Charybdis. Oh, yes, good, Francella. Speaking of Manila, him. You mean vanilla. I just swept the market clean of that sweet vanilla bean. Hemp's a bustin', Mr. Charybdis. It's a washout, Mr. Silla. So what was it about the golden apple that really drew you in? I mean, you were someone you say in, in the book you enjoyed musicals right. um every time you went to new york you talk about having gone to see them so were musicals just something that were always kind of in your life right right and so um but you know most of them were straight book musicals i mean the the, the classic rogers and hammerstein even the rogers and hearts that the, the uh, frank lessers the, the learner and lows they they were all nice Book musicals and one enjoyed them, uh, but they didn't really do anything to. They didn't make you think. I don't think the, the stories were were there, and the music uh, was certainly uh, accompanying the stories really well. With Rogers and Hammerstein, of course, or the, the score was so integrated. But um, this one was so different. It was just so 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 very different. I can't. I can't think of uh, another another show like this. Uh, I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of them. Well, not in that period. I mean, it really would have, I think, stood out in the yeah. you know 50s into the late 60s as a very different experience. Right. Um, that you say it's not scene song, scene song, comedic right. song. You know, with an ingenue and a very specific. You know, it has all the elements. It has comedy. It has a love story. It has, but it. It it doesn't it, like it's it like and it being sung through like it just runs straight through these these right. this story in a very aggressive way. I almost I wonder how do you feel about the narration oh. on, on this album? It is. Um, it's an I, odd feature. It, it's an odd feature. It's very short. There's just a couple yes. rhyming lines that they do, and I thought I read. Um, that somebody was was being for did this on the spur of the moment and it really didn't really didn't add much to it. it it's such an it's it's an it's a it's an odd thing to have on a cast album, which usually right. doesn't worry doesn't worry so much about you following a story that they write new narration. They will obviously this doesn't have scenes, so that might be hard to to tell the story. But it's such an odd feature for especially something this early to have narration like this on it. And I, I, it's such an interesting thought exercise almost in how cast albums kind of could have gone. This could have become a feature. You can see it being like a small little narration moment to guide you to the next song. Whereas it went in the other direction and it was, you know, to make sure we get all the songs on there. And then eventually when CDs came in, we got dialogue and things more, you know, more and more dialogue onto cast albums. I think, I think it's helpful because um, otherwise um, th- there's so much going on in this show that this helps the narration of knowing um, where the, where they are and who they are and what's happening next. Um, and, this, and the songs are so truncated that it's really unfortunate that they mm-hmm. that they do th- had to do that, but they couldn't get it, get them all. They did. I guess this was before long playing 
they would have had to have a two record album in order to get much of the score on and i don't know if they right. would have would have got did it even then yeah it's 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 an odd period in recorded music because it's sort of we're transitioning into the lp especially in america um most cast albums at that point were released as a series of 45s or 78s in a box and this was as well there's a version you could get of this that was like i think four or five 45s um but certainly double albums were not something that would have been produced and the the first cast album that did that which comes out not too much longer after this um and which we have talked about on this on this podcast uh is actually frank lesser's the most happy fella which is a right. they go all the way it's a triple album it doesn't even well, you right. know but that's yeah. frank lesser he has a lot of clout he has you know a, 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 a his name behind it and this with a score by jerome morasis and and john travel latouche to i mean established playwright and and composer songwriters with with hits to their name but not they're not Frank Lesser, you know, no, <laughs> is no, in that, no, in that. Not Rogers and Hammerstein. Or exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I doubt the record company was willing to take a chance at that point, right. because this also was important to note an off Broadway musical, right. Um, right. which is very unusual for the time for this to be, have a cast album like this. It did transfer to Broadway and, and did about a hundred plus performances, uh, which in 1954 was not anything to sneeze at. Right. Um, with the- would the comparable be Three Penny Opera at the mm-hmm. off, yeah. off Broadway? Right. Yeah. yeah. Off Broadway is really starting to come into its own in the in the, in the mid fifties yeah, here, exactly. and is is starting to become a place where I mean we're only six years away from the Fantastics, which obviously is yeah, a true. huge success. Actually, speaking of the Fantastics, an interesting moment of synergy. I was um, I fell down a Jerry Orbach uh, YouTube hole the other day, just w- watching all kinds of great videos of Jerry Orbach because I greatly enjoy his performance and through that then revisited his his lp off broadway which contains uh i was sort of shocked to discover uh lazy afternoon from this very uh this very show yes it's a lazy afternoon and the farmer leaves his reaping and the meadow cows are sleeping and the speckled trout stop leaping upstream as we dream i have a little story about uh uh lazy afternoon just two weeks ago i went to a concert by a group uh of amateurs really really amateurs Uh, i mean these were uh, retirees and they put together a little concert and the theme of the concert was happy. This is a, going to be a happy concert. Mm-hmm. So all of the, all of the songs were like, "Get forget your troubles and get, get happy." You know, really. Mm-hmm. In the middle of it was "Lazy Afternoon," and it, which was not a happy song. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, I couldn't understand it, so I asked the director. Mm-hmm. The if she knew what this what the song was and sure. not where it came from and she knew nothing nothing <laughs> <of it. laughs> that you didn't know that this was a song of seduction yeah <laughs> to paris mm-hmm. oh no. yeah so i oh no <laughs> 
So I bought an album, a, a CD for her, and I'm going to mm. give it to her. Oh, good. <laughs> well, because it's not even one of those songs that you like the music is happy but the lyrics are maudlin where you might get tricked it's not ironically arranged it's a pretty slow right i mean seduction it's a seduction number pretty overtly that's funny (laughs) didn't really (laughs) i guess didn't pay much attention to the lyrics uh or the source material um yeah that's a pretty uh, okay that's (laughs) Look up where your songs come from, kids. That's the yeah. that's the lesson of that story. I guess so. So when did you start to to experience musicals and things like was that from a very young age or was that I think later, I was, later in life? I think I was in high school and I got the cast album of South Pacific. Mm. Uh which was I guess on 78s. Mm-hmm. And um and I started collecting cast albums. Mm. I had a huge collection. I had Four, five hundred uh, albums, and then. But when we moved, my wife and I moved to a small place. Mm. I'll give it away, so I gave it to a, a musical theater here, uh, the Skylight, and I'm mm. afraid to ask if they still have them because I I doubt if they probably tossed them all, oh. melted them down. <laughs> I wouldn't think they do that. I don't know. Uh, well, that's, I mean, well, that's, uh, it's wonderful for you to give away your, I know you gave away most of your Sondheim memorabilia as well to Marquette. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, did. I did. My Sondheim stuff took up an extra bedroom, you know? That's a good transition, actually, to say that you, one thing I was very interested in reading your book is, so you went from, were you always a, a journalist? Was that always your, your primary interest? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I wanted to be a journalist when I was in eighth grade, and I want and I wanted to work for the Milwaukee Journal. And I, oh. and I, I was I didn't live in Milwaukee; I lived in, in Upper Michigan. But we got the Milwaukee Journal, mm. and I really liked it. And I liked what people were doing there. And and after college, I got a job there. So you talk about in the book how you came to discover who Stephen Sondheim was, and and uh, and that and I won't I won't spoil that, folks. You can go out and read the book. But um, one thing that struck me was it's certainly in the book, but I, I, I wanted to ask, what was the impetus to merge these interests and have you, you talk about in the book, you, you, you ran a newsletter uh, before that you had, you know, you had experience with publishing, you had experience as an editor, you were talented as an editor. But what was the sort of inciting incident that kicked you off to be like, yes, this should be a magazine and I should be. There should yeah. be Stevenson magazine, and it should be mine. I think. I think what happened was um, my other great interest um, in composers besides Sondheim is Kurt Weill, mm. and, and it still is. And I, and I do have a large Kurt Weill collection, not as much as Sondheim, and that's going to go to Marquette as well. Mm. But anyway, um, I collect a lot of uh, CDs and uh, DVDs of of his work. And I, I especially like one of the um, one of the uh, obscure works that he did called Love Life, and uh, mm-hmm. I, there is, I'd love to talk about that. Except that there isn't an original cast recording. Mm-hmm. There's hardly any recording at all of actually, um, and it's it it's sort of comparable to Golden Apple. Uh, it's an in- interesting show and. Um, uh, it, they, uh, they're both on a par for me. 
anyway, um, there's a thing. There's something called the Kurt Weill Foundation in New York, which uh, preserves Kurt Weill's work and very, very tightly, and grants permission for their productions. And they publish, still do, a semi-annual newsletter. It used to be only about 10, 12 pages. Now it's now it's slicker, not not that big, but it contains uh, news and reviews and essays about his work. And I, I read it always. I always read it cover to cover. I still do. It still nice. comes out twice a year. It's, it's online, but there's a paper version. So that was the thing. One day, you know, I don't, I can't remember why, how this happened, but one day I thought, well, you know, if Kurt Weill, who's dead, is a, a, a dead composer, can have a newsletter, why shouldn't the greatest composer lyricist alive have a newsletter? Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, I'm a journalist. I can do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what should spot? I could. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking I couldn't do it now. Uh, I don't sure. Think. But, um, you know, I just organized it and found a staff and um, found uh, some editors and decided what to put in. And um, we just it's ran with it and did it. It's probably somewhat inconceivable to people younger than myself that the first of all it didn't already exist because of the sort of status that Sondheim currently enjoys which is higher than it was in in the mid 90s even though he was revered in the mid 90s but there's also the thing i think that people younger than i may not quite realize is that without the newsletter there weren't i mean there wasn't i think everyone knows this but it's it bears repeating there's no blogs there's no group sites there's no there's nothing there's you and your friends talking about how much you like the shows and passing around recordings and possibly if somebody has something interesting you know it's a bootleg or something like that or the video we had a somebody had videotaped sweeney todd off tv you know your tape had been degraded over years and years of us passing it around um but that's all we had and so for there to be a newsletter I mean, I think what's so interesting at the the beginning of your book, or one of the interesting things is both you and Sondheim sort of underestimate the appeal, whereas you think, well, it'll have a couple hundred, maybe a thousand people. And he sort of thought nobody would subscribe, which is very him, I think, from interviews I've seen of him. And then it, but it became, you know, a a phenomenon. It was a thing that every theater, theater I worked at had a subscription. Um, Like I say, the Music Library at Catholic U had a subscription. And it is this was the place we went for news about where where you could see the shows the big one the thing we always checked it, the first thing we checked when we opened the Sondheim review was where are the productions is there anything coming to the area right. that we can go see because you right. know aside from we didn't we weren't wealthy enough to read the Washington Post every day so this is what we, you know this is what we had to yeah. go find who's doing what um and no one ever did anyone can whistle near us. And we're still very bitter about that, I will say, 20 some <laughs> years later. Uh, but it was really, you, you seem to have like kind of caught lightning in a bottle with this. At the, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was at the right time. Mm-hmm. It worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was that interest. There, we Our first issue was in summer of 94, which was 
exactly the time that Passion uh, opened on Broadway, mm -hmm. don't in the spring, but that allowed us to have the first issue devoted to Passion uh, with interviews and news and and um, and everything, the, and photos. Uh, and so that, I think, helped the um, the thing get, get off the ground because we were providing news about mm -hmm. the current show. And, you know, I, when I look back, uh, so much of this is journalistic. I mean, I, I was mm -hmm. concerned with news. And this was, uh, this was a news event, a, a new Sondheim show. So we covered that uh, just like we would have covered uh, Green Bay Packers, maybe. Or <laughs> not quite. <laughs> sure. But no, I take your point. And I think that one of the... You, you you put early in the in the I mean the, the through line in in the book that that is fascinating to me is or sometimes notes to you his yeah. his his yeah. meticulous reviewing of this which you speculate and I think you're correct especially because of the way I encountered the magazine so that that's always how I think of it was he believed it would be read by academics in the future yeah. and so that it was important to him to that it be as accurate as possible right. um and it certainly was used for scholarship even when I was in college. So, you know, we'd have directors of show, doing Sondheim shows coming and pouring over the magazine, reading for, you know, tidbits and, and help right. with those, um, with the show. And so it it is a very, it is certainly not as dry as an academic journal, but it is a serious piece of journalism in that yeah. sense, like you say. And you had editorials, you had, you know, more sort of opinion-based content in there as well but it always felt like i was reading an informative magazine it wasn't a fanzine you know it was an actual dedication I really, yeah i really did not want it to be a fanzine yeah and I, I just that just turned me off i did i did not want to do that so i have to say my favorite thing about reading the book was i think more than any book i have read about someone who actually you know corresponded with with Sondheim we've read you know been articles and interviews with people who are collaborators but I think from your book I really got a great sense of what he was like to work with because mm -hmm. as you put sort of at the end of the book when you retired as the as the the editor he sent you a little note which just sort of said thank you very much you know for everything yeah. yeah and you put out how you were not you know people said aren't you disappointed and you said no it was a editor to subject sort of relationship and that was and that made me go back through the book and sort of read his other correspondence and that's where I got this sort of feeling that like I think I really got a sense more than any other book of what he was like to work with to you know you guys had a very professional relationship that did have emotion in it and I will ask you a question about that in a second yeah. um I'll but yeah uh and had you know, so uh, certain he he cared about what was happening, and you cared about what you were doing, but it was a a real collaboration, and and that really more than you know any of the book writers he worked with or any of the directors, it felt like I, I got a sense of the sort of exactness of his nature, and his professionalism, how much he cared about what he did. That really comes yeah, through. I know that that's what um, that's what impressed me too, and and you know the, the one a running theme through the whole book is his work on the show that started off as wise guys and mm -hmm. ended up as roadshow. But he, when we talked about that, he was get so excited about it. It was like, 
um, like George in, in Sunday in the Park, uh, mm-hmm. that, he, that he really was so immersed in this show and he, um, maybe too immersed so they couldn't see the faults of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the critics did, of course. And right. um, uh, so it's unfortunate that his last show was not a success. Mm-hmm. But um, but the way he worked on it was so impressive to me. What was different about seeing a Sondheim show to you? I mean, you, you obviously you you enjoyed Golden Apple. You said one of the things you enjoyed about it was how different it was from what else was you were seeing. What was it? I think the first one you said you well, you saw. Do I hear a waltz first? I believe yeah, you say. Right. Uh, which which again, we all envy you for having seen the original Broadway yeah. production of Do I Hear a Waltz? Uh, flawed though it though it was. Yeah, but. I think the first one that really grabbed you was Follies. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, that that's the one that started the whole thing. I mean, mm-hmm. um, before that, I hardly knew who he was mm-hmm. or what he had done. And uh, he had actually done Company and Funny Thing Happened on the Void of the Forum before mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. as well as Anyone Can Whistle. Uh, but uh, it was uh, Follies that I uh, that introduced me to to Sondheim. And, and it just blew me away the... Uh, the the story, the sets, the, the costumes, the, but mostly the score. I mean, it was so buried, it, the, the, and and so deep. There were so many layers in the score, um, and the songs uh, that uh, you just they they were like poetry, and and you had to read them. And that's why I, I think it was important for me to get this script at some point. And um, and and read them all line by line, mm-hmm. and and see what the what the depth of them each of the songs were. I I've often said that if I could go back and see any one original Broadway production of any musical, it would be the original Broadway production of Follies, um, yeah, yeah. which everyone I I've ever talked to who's seen it, or even as as um. I was fortunate enough to interview Kurt Peterson, who was in oh, it, yeah. was the original Young Buddy. Yeah, um, yeah. And, he, you know, it is it has I mean, it, it grows with time, obviously, 50 some years on. It has a, achieved a sort of mythic status, but it does seem to be one of those like the most important shows ever to play on Broadway because it did really everyone who saw it and really saw it came away changed, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, it, you, it, you, it just, it was an incredible experience. And I've seen oh, oh, probably 10 other productions of Follies. Some mm-hmm. of them really bad, uh, but some of them okay. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing compared to the original. To the original. And interestingly, just like Golden Apple, a, an original cast album that does not represent the entire score no. and is a real yeah. shame. <laughs> is it yeah a tremendous shame that original capital records release is it is you mentioned that you thought the folly score was really varied which i agree um it's also something you said about golden apple is that is very is, as as someone who is a great consumer of musical theater it seems to me what um is that something you really look for when you see a, a show is a is a as variety in the score yeah i i think so i mean uh there, that's. I, I guess I hadn't thought about it, but I, it is. It is a very important that that is that it carries a story, mm-hmm. but that uh, it carries it in different ways. And you can have humor, and you can have tragedy, and you can have 
subtlety and you can have blatant parts of it and you have a lot of satire there's a lot of satire in golden apple of course mm -hmm. and um and so if if all of that combines and makes such a varied score and and helps make the show much more enjoyable how how familiar were you with the iliad when you first encountered you know, golden I, apple I, oh really I no i was not I, oh okay i, mean, I, had, I had to I had to go back and read all the, the stuff because I thought, okay, uh, all right. I, I vaguely knew about Ulysses and mm -hmm. Penelope, but um, no, I did not know the, the story. Oh, that's interesting. I would have assumed the opposite because I found my familiarity with the story down to the sort of the character in, uh, was it Mother Hare? Yeah. Um, is a character that if I hadn't recently just listened to an episode of National Geographic's Greeking Out podcast with my son, where they talk about the wedding and, and the apple and, and the tr trial with Paris and what starts this entire like problem right. with the Trojan War, um, I would have found myself a little confused. I had the experience of listening to, we did a show uh, a, a year or two ago on this podcast with the composer Adam Guan, where we talked about, there's this musical called Das Barbecue. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't, I'm not familiar with it. I'm but, just yeah. but so it's a, it's a country Western adaptation of the ring cycle. And I found it incomprehensible, not really knowing the ring cycle. Once I did some research on the ring cycle, I was then able to follow the musical a little bit better. But so I think it's interesting that you not knowing the Iliad outside of probably the general, you yeah, know, yeah. who that, that there's, I think the Iliad is something that we're not very familiar with. Most people can have a passing understanding of the Odyssey, I would think, but the more famous of the two books. But aside from Achilles and the war, most people don't know this long, elaborate setup to the to to how the whole thing got started, which this show spends most of the first acts on is that. Yeah. that wedding and the setup and all the trouble that is caused in that, in that circumstance. But I, but you know, I, I think you can enjoy golden apple, even no, not knowing uh, the, the legends before Baba and in great depth. I mean, the story carries it, it carries itself on its own. Mm -hmm. If you do know that it adds so much more to it and you can see what what they're they're referring to and what the what the background is for the for what their actions, but uh, it can be it can be enjoyed just on its own. I think, and I think that that's that really speaks to its to its it, it that's to its credit. I think it's a fault. I, I found it to be a fault of Das Barbecue that I was again. I'm listening. I'm just listening to the album. I didn't see the show, so it's it, it's not a fair assessment. But I did really even with reading the plot synopsis found myself kind of lost as I had, as I say, no familiarity with, with the ring cycle. And it, it really speaks to, I think the quality of the show that if you who didn't really know the Iliad at all could very much enjoy, you know, sit back and enjoy the evening. That's the kind of adaptation you really want. You don't want an adaptation where you have to know all the footnotes you right. know, before you go in. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. It can really be. So what was the, <laughs> As somebody, I'm thinking how to phrase this question exactly. Did you find while you were working on the Sondheim review, in it, it, it's sort of in the in the depths of it, I would say, that it obviously would have affected your enjoyment of Sondheim's work 
you're sort of more looking at him, especially new things that are coming out from a journalistic, you know, oh, we have to have an article on this album's coming out or this sort of new recording or this production. I think, yeah, I think it did. Uh, because I, they were, they were uh, the subjects of what journalistically we were writing about. And we were not, and I was not going to the shows as a, a fan as somebody who just wanted to sit back and enjoy it but i was always thinking when i would see oh if i went to new york and i saw sweeney todd uh, i would think okay how are we going to report on this and how you know it was always as a journalist that i was looking at his shows i didn't do that when i saw other shows by other people mm. it was only while i was doing Sondheim review and um, and knowing that we were going to be reporting on these works that I would be concerned and I sort of took away some of the enjoyment of uh, of watching them. Did you ever regret it at any point? You're like, gosh, I wish no, I didn't have to write about this. No, no, no. 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 I think you know. I, I think it it, ha- it helped what we were doing. So that's fine. And since then. When um, when I see a Sondheim show or any other show, I can sit back and enjoy it more. So <laughs> I get that leads me nicely, though. Into, I really want you to talk about we, we say that I, I said that you, it seemed that you and, and Sondheim had a collaboration on this magazine. And I think that's a good word for it. Um, but you talk early on about an instance where you had a heated exchange through letters and then also on the phone Uh about a review that <laughs> was posted in the Sata review that I think you say in the book still baffles you to this day. It still, it still baffles me. I, I, <laughs> you know, how many years? There was 1996, and it still still baffles me. And Can I, you tell I, the folks what happened? <laughs> what happened was, I mean, we, we, we he was very, very cordial to, to me and enter the magazine, you know, keep up the good work, congratulations, great issue, you know, he'd, he'd write all this stuff, and and um, it was very friendly, and uh, well, at one point he said uh, that I knew more about him than he did, which was not true, of course. <laughs> right. But um, but a lovely thing so, to say, nonetheless. So as we were, we were covering uh, his shows uh, here in the United States, and in London, and we had a correspondent in London who had reviewed Company and Little Night Music and did well. And um, and then uh, the reviewer uh, reviewed uh, Passion, which had a production there um, with Maria Friedman. It was it was a good review. I mean, it was very objective. Uh, the reviewer had seen Passion in New York, so it was the reviewer compared the London production to the New York production and not terribly favorably. She thought that the uh, London production lacked some depth and and didn't hit the right notes in, uh, in the, what the story was about. It's a very hard show to produce, yeah. to tell. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so we ran the review and I thought, you know, and I moved on. And it came. The magazine came out, and um, he got it, and like uh, he always did. And he didn't write me a note at that point. At that point, he he didn't call a call. But this time, he did call. I picked up the phone. And I said, 
And he didn't even introduce himself. He just started ranting, literally ranting. Um, how could we run that that review? How that reviewer doesn't know anything? Uh, what are the reviewers' credentials? Everybody loved the show. Uh, why 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 did you do that? You know, accusing me of some sort of conspiracy, I guess. <laughs> uh, and all I did was. Uh, you know, run a, run a review. Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway, and I could not get a conversion. That's why it seemed like it went on for hours, but it was probably 20 minutes. And so uh, he finally hung up. Okay. And I thought, and sat back and said, what was that about? Mm-hmm. Because it's, uh, it reminded me as an editor at the paper of having to defend a story that a reporter had written mm-hmm. uh, from a source. Uh, and But this time it was a very personal he, he accused the uh, reviewer in very personal terms. Mm. Uh, and apparently he knew who the reviewer. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, uh, so I wrote him a letter and I said, would they, you know, this is what I want the reviews to be. They want to be objective. They want to, we're, we're writing for readers. We're not writing for the, you. <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, so then he wrote a note and the note said, that the reviewer is known to make stuff up. Well, come on, mm-hmm. that's libelous. I yeah, you can't do that. And right. so I, I well, we printed all of his other notes that he that he sent, but we couldn't print that because it would have been libelous. Right. So I wrote him another letter. <laughs> <laughs> then he called again, mm-hmm. and uh, this went on for weeks, mm-hmm. and. and uh, and there wasn't that bad at this time, but and then, and then, then he dropped it. Mm-hmm. Never in the eight years that I dealt with him after that, he never brought that subject up. And I have no idea. Something must be have gone been going on in his life mm-hmm. at that point. I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe I I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it is, it's a, I mean, you document it so well in the book. It is a, what you really get from the book, though, that I appreciate is your confusion the whole time. The perversive, it it got very funny to me to sort of be like, you're you're, you're writing things. I don't know what is happening because it it seems so out of character for him. It's, it's so nice that he was passionate about his work, I guess, but that was, that's, you know, like you say, it's not a fanzine. And I think it speaks to the reviews credibility that you would run negative reviews you would run tepid reviews of his work and it, it's that's an honest account of what that reviewer saw which is all a review can be obviously and yeah that's <laughs> have you have you read mary rogers book not yet i'm very excited to but no i haven't yet you haven't yet well no. there's a lot of stuff about sondheim in there and i was reading it trying to think if something you know if she get sense something going on with him at some points and there mm-hmm. were she does say that i think uh maybe that's why it ha- was not published until eight years after her death right <laughs> well yeah i've read some excerpts i'm very excited because she says some things and i'm very excited too <laughs> I, I gave it to, to two people i know and they couldn't read it oh <laughs> it was too they, much. They said, I can't read this. Oh, so, my. Well, it destroys a lot of myths about her parents. For well, yes. I mean, that is, which I think is, 
if if you are plugged into the history a little bit, things you might already know, but there's you have to be kind of plugged into the yeah, yeah. the history of it. If if you're just fans of yeah, you know, Richard Rogers and yeah. and his wife who invented that wonderful mop, um, you may not know just yeah. sort of the the background to it. Um which even I think Sondheim fans are probably somewhat aware of because there was I mean, he's a tremendous critic of Richard Rogers, but you publish a, a letter he wrote to the to the magazine about do I hear a waltz saying that the reviewer he thought was unfair to maybe something about to Richard Rogers. Yeah. Um, but he did describe him at one point. Uh, I'll never forget. It's because it's, it's Sondheim. He's great with words. He described. Oscar Hammerstein is a man of infinite soul and limited talent. And Richard Rogers is a man of infinite talent and limited soul. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, <laughs> that tells you a lot, I think about, about the man who was Richard Rogers. And something about Stephen Sondheim. Yes. And something about Stephen Sondheim. Um, oh, speaking of words I had written down here, I, I will say another very fun section of, of the book uh, of Sondheim and me is um, your section on translations, which oh. doesn't have a lot of so like Sondheim correspondence in it, which is my favorite part of the book in general. But it is a fascinating, di wonderful diversion into the horrible task some people had of translating Stephen Sondheim's lyrics I into other that. languages. I know that I know that the, the chapter doesn't really fit in with Sondheim, but uh, except that it does talk. Well, it fits about in with the magazine very, very well. I mean, that was part of, you know, it's part of the magazine. Yeah, I, I worry that, you know, it might be. And uh, my wife didn't think this really related to what the theme of the book was, but I really liked it. And, and yeah. some other people have commented as well because, you know, uh, translate. Can you imagine translating no. Stephen Sondheim into Japanese? I, I mean, cannot. You cannot. Well, and that's what was, that's what I really enjoyed about it as, as, a, as a writer myself was the, the challenge of, the in Japanese, like I think the example the the translator gives is that even the name Sondheim, two syllables in English, is six syllables in Japanese, yeah. and each of those syllables, I mean, putting it down to the problem, each of those syllables needs a note, right? And you just go, oh God, like that. That was when it crystallized for me. I'm like, oh, this is a nightmare. What you what you are encountering right now? I really, I really wanted to run more of that because uh, mm -hmm. we did run complete. So the lyrics of the original lyrics and then the translations into Japanese or Italian or whatever, mm -hmm. and then back into right into what the what those what those what uh, the meaning is yeah yeah, yeah. So that that was fun to read read again uh, it was so much fun to go through the magazines again mm. and see and I, fortunately I had them all on my computer I didn't have to type them all up again. That would have been impossible. So obviously we're in a period now of, you know, Stephen Sondheim has, has passed away not too long ago and, and everyone is sort of coming out with their accounts and their remembrances yeah. of, of him. Mm -hmm. And what I really enjoyed about reading the book was I like your, your approach to it from a, it does feel, and I mean, this as a compliment as a more journalistic approach. It is an account of a period of time. You know, yeah. with yeah. your own, I mean, clearly something you enjoy. That is not, you, you don't hide that. I'm not saying it's dispassionate, but it yeah. does really give me a much, a, a sense of something I haven't had from any other book, which is a sense of, like I say, what it's like to work with Stephen Sondheim and what it's like to, 
to be an observer. I mean, you're out, you're not in, you're not in New York, you're in Milwaukee. And I think that gives you a nice journalistic distance from the immediacy yeah. and sort of maybe the glitz and the excitement of being of a yeah. Sondheim show. And it is much more, it feels much more appreciative, sort of a more of a bird's eye view of his work than some of the other insidery ones. Yeah, and, and, and I think that gave me a perspective because if I were in New York, surrounded by Sondheim freaks, uh, that that would have influenced what I how I was writing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so this gave me some distance from him and his work, and I think journalistically that was very important. And you're also not. I, I think that it gives you a good distance. I mean, he didn't have a publicist, but it does give you a distance from people who you know producers and producers assistants yeah. and people who would want to be you know, who would want their, you know, the rah-rah stories or whatever to go in the publication yeah. and you don't have to worry about any of that. You're, you're out yeah. there and, right. you know, separated from above all that. And uh, it, it, yeah, I think it really, it really worked to the, to the magazine's advantage. Um, and I just absolutely, I had an absolutely wonderful time reading it. I'm so glad you wrote it. Uh, it, it is a, an, an, a, 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 not a very long, an excellent, important account of an aspect of Stephen Sondheim's life that maybe most people didn't encounter. You know, it, it, it gives so. us a sense of that. Yeah, I think it really, it, it really yeah, accomplished. I, I didn't want it to be more than what it is. What it is mm. is ten years, and um, my my recollections and my uh, relationship and what what happened in uh, theatrically during that period because there were five or six revivals that we reported on very much mm -hmm. and um and the fashion and saturday night and yeah that you you've said that that ticks my so one one thing i found reading the book that was um i found i remembered incorrectly was i thought from from my comfortable seat as a sophomore in high school in wilmington delaware thought that the company revival in 95 the boyd Gaines revival was more successful than it was and more well-received than it was. And it was a little shocking to read your account of it and go, oh, it wasn't huge? Because it was huge, right? You know, in my community theater and high school theater group. Yeah. Um, that it was kind of received pretty tepidly. And, uh, and you know, as a lot of company revivals have been since, I would say. Uh, it, it uh, Yeah, that was a funny moment of like, oh, I guess it wasn't the huge success that I thought it was. It was it was kind of sort of flat. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I did not see the original production, so I can't compare. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it was a, it was a nice production. It was a nice production. I thought Board Games was very good. Mm -hmm. Deborah Monk was very, yeah. very good. Um, uh, Jane Krakowski was terrific. Uh, but uh, it it was not a super production. Just like the revival of Follies was also a big disappointment mm -hmm. yeah a lot of expectation that i remember though i remember because that started down here at the kennedy center so that yeah. i remember being uh not yeah. uh not yeah. not not so huge uh i will also say that uh, uh, something that we've often heard about uh since since mr sondheim passed away is his generosity of spirit and i appreciate that you bookend the book that way with the, with the story of, of, of his generosity, because that's what caused you to first get in touch with him, I believe about Saturday night. Right. Uh, but 
what I really appreciated it about it from your end was that a lot of the stories I'd heard had been from Broadway people and it was always in the last decade. And you sort of think, well, he's an older man and you know, he has a lot of time on his hands or anything like that. You think in, in, in the last decade of his life, of course, he, it's very nice that he's very generous with his time, but these are Broadway people and he's, you know, it's in the, in the waning hour, but you first wrote to him in the, was it the early eighties? I wrote to him in 1984 yeah. when, when he was doing Sunday in the Park. And in the midst of that very hectic and sort of tortured production, yes. he took the time not only to write you back, but he sent you, was it a cassette of the backers audition for Saturday night? He sent me the cassette tape of the backers audition. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I know. And here you go. Here he was. He, you know, I, I didn't realize it until until uh, James Lapine's book come out came out uh, mm-hmm. that he wrote this letter, to, this note to me at exactly the same time when he w- had just finished the two songs that were holding up the whole show. Uh, everybody was getting so mad because he they had to have, write these two songs for the second act, and he was dawdling i you know didn't have the inspiration whatever yeah, famous procrastinator as he would yeah. call himself yeah so he did he did finally finish the two songs and he sat down and he wrote me this note saying that he needed his ego to be boosted and i didn't understand what that was about mm-hmm. um and and then he enclosed the uh cassette tape of the uh of the show and then you know he he shut he gave me other things he gave me a videotape of passion of the Italian film for which mm-hmm. uh, Passion was based, he sent me sheet music from high from college productions that he'd uh, given. Um, I I guess I sent him some things, and I'm I'm not I don't even remember doing doing that or what I sent him, but mm-hmm. we sort of exchanged a few things. But he was very very generous and and at that point and i guess his whole life it's it's a great lesson i think for for anyone who who is in the position to who is you know wants to be in the creative arts that there is always time to be generous there is always time to be caring and there is always time to be nurturing and i i really think that that's a great lesson because that can get sight of that can get lost very very quickly yeah in in the entertainment industry uh not known for its compassion um that there was someone who was not only good but the best and still also could be generous of spirit and could you know have his moments too as you experienced but on balance was yeah yeah seems like a pretty nice guy yeah that, that that's what i remember you know, mm-hmm. there was that one glitch, but otherwise, I do remember a very generous man. Yeah, and it comes through in 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 the book, and absolutely. Um, which is there'll be a link to it in the show notes, folks. But it is called "Sondheim and Me: Re- uh, Revealing a Musical Genius." It is available now. I want to uh, wrap up as I always like to by asking you, uh, what is your favorite song in the Golden Apple? As we sort of swing uh, hard back into that show for a second. You know. Yeah, I think it's Windflowers. This is Penelope uh, singing about uh, Ulysses, who was off the war and doing terrible things and rhododendron. But she remembers him as in their first years together. I love that song. That has a had a little, somewhat of a little life afterwards, but not not like lazy afternoon. 
Paul, thank you so much for doing this. This was wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it a lot. And talking to a nice, knowledgeable person who loves Sondheim and loves Golden Apple, which there aren't many of you. Original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for t-shirts, tote bags, magnets, and more. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Paul Salcini for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. (laughs) 